Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Today, I am really excited to have on the show Scott McGaw for his new book, Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin, The Glider Pilots of World War II. Scott is a veteran journalist and the published author of several books, including Midway Magic, which became the basis for the History Channel show Hero Ship, the USS Midway. Scott has also served as the founding marketing director of the USS Midway Museum in San Diego. Scott, how are you doing today? Doing very well. I'm in San Diego. How bad can it be? It's gorgeous here. And thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about this slice of the greatest generation. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to be honest, Scott, I thought that everything that could be written about World War II <laughs> had been written until I came across your book, right. and which was really enjoyable. So the glider pilots of World War II, I'll be honest, I didn't even know there were gliders in World War II. So this is such a, this is such a fascinating topic yeah. for, for me. I guess kind of first off, why did you write this book? Well, I, I, I guess I, I've settled kind of on a description, A.G., a little bit about many of the books I write. I'm fascinated by uh, battlefield heroes who I want to have over for dinner, who I just want to get to know better and, and become friends with. And that's kind of become the, the unifying theme of the different stories that I have found whose legacies, I think, need to be preserved. And, and certainly glider pilots is one of them. Uh, actually I came, I was like you, I had never heard of the word glider in the same sentence as world war two. Uh, but in a previous book, honor before glory about a Japanese American unit rescue mission, there was a brief mention of one unit, uh, one portion of that unit, uh, was not available because they had been flown into France on gliders. And I literally wrote down the word glider and kept working on that book and got it published and so on and came back to the word glider. And lo and behold, I discovered this legacy uh, that's just extraordinary. And to your point, largely unrecognized and and even unknown. And hopefully you and I can help correct that today. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find that most people don't don't know about the gliders? I mean, certainly if you didn't. No one does, except a very small group. Uh, And I don't want to oversimplify it, but by and large, it's family members of the glider pilots who are aware of grandpa or great-grandpa, if you will, sometimes. And many of them are are very passionate uh, about what grandpa or dad did uh, in the war and how he contributed to the war. Some of them are extraordinarily dedicated, thank God, for uh, preserving their legacies, their their personal records, their letters, their diaries, and so on. But I think for most people, certainly as civilians uh, and even World War II fans uh, and academics in some respects, it is largely unknown. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about gliders real quick. What was the purpose uh, of the glider in in World War II? What was the tactical advantage? Um, Which countries were, were using gliders? 
Basically, by the time we got ready to uh, invade the European theater of operation, obviously the Germans had been had been dug in for several years. So it was going to be amphibious landings, by and large, uh, the whole notion of paratroopers uh, being uh, flown in 5, 10, 15 miles behind the front lines in a strategy called vertical envelopment, uh, attack from the beach and attack from the rear. Get troops uh, to the rear, uh, behind the front lines, uh, prevent reinforcements from coming forward, seizing key uh, access routes, roads, causeways, that sort of thing, and, and really attack the enemy, the Germans, from both sides. Well, paratroopers generally were only going to carry about a day or two worth of supplies. Uh, so how were you going to uh, supply them? Fundamentally, it was uh, by parachute and, and equally important, even more so, were by gliders. So gliders, to a certain extent, were the reinforcements, uh, the suppliers uh, of the, the paratroop, uh, paratroopers aspect uh, of these invasions at Normandy and, and crossing the Rhine River and southern France and so on. So the glider pilots uh, delivered um, medical personnel, communications personnel, glider infantry, uh, fuel, weapons, ordnance. Uh, all those things were, were critical to any given, say, D-Day at Normandy. Uh, so vertical envelopment uh, made possible in large part by the glider pilots together with the paratroopers. And it was, so not just America using gliders, it was um, yes. Britain you write about. I, were other countries using gliders? Yes. Uh, Britain uh, had a glider program uh, in advance of, of, the, of the States. America was, was late to the party, which we can get into a little bit but later. But yes, they, uh, they had developed Britain a glider called the Horsa, larger than what the American glider had, uh, made of plywood. Uh, the American glider was made of reinforced fabric. Uh, over a tubular steel frame. Germany had gliders, uh, had a very robust glider training program throughout the 30s, but uh, discovered despite one successful raid early in the war before we got involved, following a situation in Crete uh, was such a disaster that Hitler basically turned away from glider warfare because of the losses in, in, on one particular day. So it didn't remain a key element of the, of the German model uh, of, of warfare uh, while it grew relatively quickly uh, from scratch uh, for the States and for Britain. Well, I suppose you, it, the reason that a glider is used is because a lot of these supplies, you can't just, you can't parachute the supplies in, correct? Ex ex yeah, ex exactly. Uh, you know, th these these gliders weighed about 3,700 pounds and carried almost the same amount of weight in terms of, of uh, cargo uh, or 13 uh, infantrymen, glider infantry. Yeah. Uh, well, so, yes, they were able to, uh, I think, land in, in some respects more reliably, although that was an issue, uh, both by parachute pair drops as well as gliders, uh, weather and uh, the fog of war, some of the variables that would take place that, that we can get into a little bit. But fundamentally, the idea was to get them down on the landing zones, which was usually very, very close to the drop zones of the paratroopers, uh, to get them rearmed, resupplied to, to carry the fight uh, to the enemy from the rear. Right. And well, you know, the with a title like Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin, one immediately assumes that it's not the safest uh, no. assignment that, that you can have. Real quick, could you you very helpfully include photographs in your book of what a glider looks like? Mm -hmm. Could you just describe for the audience, you know, a typical World War II glider? How big was it? You just sure. did a little bit, but, you know, what did it look like? What was it made from? Uh, the wingspan was about 88 feet. The length was about 48 feet. 
basically the size of a B-25 bomber. Uh, so these were good size aircraft. They weren't small little hobby gliders by any stretch. You know, they were large enough again to carry almost two tons of supplies or, or payload, 13 men in the back. Um, they were made of fabric. They were squarish in, in, in general shape, uh, made of this reinforced fabric around a hollow steel tube frame. It had a reinforced plywood floor of 5,000 pieces that was designed in a honeycomb way to, to be able to carry a small Jeep or withstand the, the weight uh, of a trailer or the ordnance and so on. What made them remarkable to me, one aspect, is once they released, these brave men uh, flew them down, generally in, in broad circles, tighter, 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 like around a drain until they finally got to where they were headed for in a given field. And once they landed, they skidded to a stop, generally uh, in, in farm fields and, and pastures. The front cockpit literally opened upwards. It was hinged. And the cockpit was all plexiglass. These guys were exposed on three sides through plexiglass uh, to enemy fire. But once they landed, they were then able to lift the, the cockpit by hinges upwards and unload the cargo out the front of the aircraft. Now, if they were carrying infantry, they could. there was do- a couple of doors on the sides and they could go out the side. But uh, basically, it was a long rectangular aircraft uh, made of reinforced fabric uh, that would s- largely generally slide to a stop in the middle of the enemy territory. Without ever having seen a glider function, and you know, I can kind of imagine what some of the dangers of 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 a, an aircraft like this are. But what are what are some of the things that make this a really dangerous operation? Well, I, I think a large part is just the fact that they had very little time and, and no, almost no evasive capability. Uh, once they were released over the landing zone, uh, they had one job, and that was almost to go straight down, if you will figuratively speaking, uh, to get on the ground. And when you, a, a lot of times I had not seen before until I did some of the research, but when I went to some of these battlefields, uh, landing zones to, to do some research and actually saw the size of the shrapnel that I, I saw on the battlefield and imagine what this would have been like to be, you know, ripping Is through. that shrapnel that you're holding up uh, right yes, now? Yes, I am. Yeah. That's okay. a piece the size of my palm of my hand. Uh, when it okay. breaks, it literally is knife. You could cut you could shave with this just na- right. naturally or designed to break. Think mm-hmm. about this going at 3000 feet a second through a tent and you're sitting there on a plywood bench, hoping to get down and get out you know, alive. Glider pilots wrote about the sound of popcorn popping uh, the enemy uh, small arms fire ripping through these fuselages. So it was an extremely dangerous, almost largely defenseless, both for the passengers and the glider pilots. Their job was again, to get on the ground, uh, immediately surrounded. Uh, you know, they almost never landed uh, in a pasture that wasn't in enemy territory, uh, at least very nearby. Uh, and their job was to unload uh, and, and take the fight, do what they could uh, accordingly. So it really, when you think about it, and these were all volunteers, AJ, the, these were young men who volunteered for a mission, a, a role in the war. And what I think is just amazing to me, they volunteered for an aircraft that had not yet been invented at at the time of Pearl Harbor. Literally, these aircraft, the specs, the design, their capabilities, how to fly them and so on, literally was being invented as they were being trained for an unknown aircraft. Uh, And yet by the end of the war, they had really forged a remarkable legacy uh, in European theater of operations. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the pilots 
which this is the heart of the the story. Yes. First, you know, how many pilots, how many glider pilots were there um, throughout the the whole war? And then what were the types of people who became glider pilots? At one point, uh, they had 10,000 pilots in the training pipeline. That ended up being more than what actually saw combat. Personnel records are kind of hard to, to sort from my research, but as best as I can determine, between three and perhaps 4,000 uh, glider pilots uh, saw duty uh, in, in Europe. Uh, about 13,000 gliders were manufactured. Most of those were used in training uh, uh, in Europe as well as in, in Europe. So this was a very small slice, relatively small slice of uh, the American presence. You know, two million men were in Europe at the time of when, when peace finally came. You know, we're talking about 4,000 roughly glider pilots who uh, who actually uh participated, uh, were part of that force. So their legacy in only uh, six, five or six missions and only about 10 months, 10 months of the war is really remarkable and outsized in, in many ways for the number of men, the number of volunteers, uh, and how they contributed to some of the, the major operations in Europe. And so like, what were, um, was there a, a typical background for a glider pilot? Oh, were they, you know, talk about the types of people who became glider pilots. Yeah, yes. Uh, they had a mixed reputation in some ways. Um, if there was one thing that united all of them and everything that I researched for several years is a love of flying. So many of these young men loved flying in high school. Some of them had built their own gliders be, to be towed behind 1935 Ford cars, uh, that sort of thing. Many of them had wanted to be fighter pilots or bomber pilots, and uh, either uh, those schools, those training pipelines were already filled, or maybe they couldn't meet the eyesight qualifications or, or something along those lines. And when this program came along about a year after the war started, it gave them an opportunity uh, to serve their country in the air, which is almost what all of them wanted to do. They, some of them had a reputation for being rapscallions. Uh, sometimes they were men who were just not happy in the duty station they had. And this was an opportunity to, to get out of Puerto Rico and do something fun and, and, and daring um, and, and uh, scratch their itch for a, a love of flying. We'll, we can get into this here in a minute, but it, it was a unique element of this part of the war that these men, once they landed and reported uh, to their glider officer in combat, their primary mission after that was to hitchhike back to base, get back to their base in France or England any way they could. And sometimes they, those guys might, some guys might take a few extra days, a little sightseeing on their way back to England or whatever. And that did give glider pilots in some quarters a little bit of a mixed reputation uh, from that. Rapscallions uh, was a word that I, I, I heard at one point or read at one point. But, you know, thinking about it for a moment, here's an excerpt, uh, a training officer of glider pilots in the States. He later wrote, there was an increased VD rate ill-advised marriages, poor money management, too many hot checks and run-ins with civil authorities. And this was in the States. I thought glider pilots only needed to see lightning, hear thunder, and have two natural teeth. But in reality, they were some of the finest officers I ever served with. That pretty well, in a graphic way, sums it up in terms of 
these guys being some of them being uh, quite characters, but they were all dedicated. They were all volunteers for these impossible missions. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the different uh, people that you profile in the book, Mm -hmm. it really you really get a, a real sense, I think that I mean, one, they, as you just said, some very colorful people, but, you know, to be in a, a plane that's got no engine and you basically are, if you want to call it this crash landing every time that you fly it, you know, there's, uh, there's gotta be a lot of heroism there. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, selflessness. Talk about some of the, some of the people that you, you chronicle, maybe just like give us a, a couple of them. Um, tell us their stories and, and their backgrounds and, and what led them to become glider pilots. You know, it's interesting you ask that. They really, there's some, some common themes that really, I think, spread across many of them uh, as much as individual. Many of the young men who, who volunteered, uh, they weren't yet in the military in 1941, 1942, or they were about to be drafted uh, and decided to volunteer uh, and then learned of this brand new program that they were inventing uh, in the States you know, at that time. So a lot of these guys, you know, a year earlier, they were in high school, you know, or they were clearing brush uh, at a logging camp in a job that their father had gotten for them, or they were walking behind mules uh, in in Georgia, uh, plowing cotton fields through uh, the clay. Seemed like a lot of them came from uh, Texas for some reason, more often than not. Most of them didn't really have a direction in life, I would think, uh, from what I read. Of course, the war changed everything at, at that point. So these were young men just simply looking to make a difference. And they had that love of flying, and, and that took them in a particular direction. Some of them were married. A number of them were married you know, with wives and, and, and children back home. But, you know, I'm sure you've seen this phrase many times when it comes to World War II. You know, I've got a job to do. I'm just doing my job. You know, my life will resume uh, once this thing is over. Uh, was kind of a, a common thing. And to go a little bit beyond your question, what really struck me about them is the amount of trust, training, and teamwork they had in, in each other. Uh, that, you know, when you fight in the war, I, I, in all my research, oftentimes it's, you're not fighting ideology. You're, you're fighting to survive, uh, to achieve an objective, to take care of your buddy next to you, and you're trusting the buddy next to you uh, to take care of you. Those are the kinds of things that really struck me in, in reading their chronicles and, and their life histories and, and so on. They were, in some ways, average Americans doing extraordinary things uh, in a time that, and in a way that you and I can't begin to imagine. The history is so, of course, Pearl Harbor is attacked uh, December of 1941. And um, the first action that, that the glider pilots see is the invasion of Sicily, right? which is about a year later, I think. Uh, two years later, uh, 1943. Years later. Yeah. Talk about then, so like talk about the, the buildup for the glider pilot program. How, how, did, how were they manufactured, the gliders? How did this idea even get into the minds of the U.S. Air Force leadership? Yes, uh, you're, you're referring to General uh, Hap Arnold. 
Yes. Who had five heart attacks, I learned from your book. Yes. Yeah. He was not a well man. (laughs) He died not too many years after World War II uh, here in California. He had had heart trouble. Uh, It was his idea, his concept. I'm sure others contributed to it. Again, this whole notion of vertical envelopment and how are we going to breach uh, Europe uh, at at that point a year or two later. It was a very rushed program. Uh, He ordered it, uh, the design in early 1942. Simplistically, it took about a year to settle on a final design uh, and then quickly uh, recruit uh, manufacturers. Uh, None of them had ever built a glider because a glider never had existed before. The quality of the manufacturing as a result was horrific in the early days. Holy unqualified manufacturers uh, and subcontractors were building parts. Literally wings fell off in flight. Uh, One time an instructor was leaning against the wing on the ground talking to his uh, students and it fell off. I can't imagine what kind of confidence that instilled or destroyed uh, amongst these students. Some of the subcontractors, uh, Steinway Pianos, uh, Heinz Ketchup Company, a casket manufacturer, can't imagine what that must have. I hope the students didn't know that, uh, that a casket manufacturer was making some of the key couplings um, at, from that standpoint. So these guys were literally, they were inventing the training program as they went. Um, they were training for an aircraft that didn't exist. So how do you train for that? Well, they had to use sailplanes uh, in the beginning until some of these gliders finally came off the assembly lines. Well, sailplanes are all designed to do one thing, stay up in the air. And they were being trained to do just the opposite, get on the ground as quickly as possible. Uh, it seems like a bass backwards way uh, to train for war, and yet that's all they had available. So on one hand, they're struggling to, to, to build reliable aircraft that would do the job. At the same time, they were changing the, the training program and, their, and the entrance requirements because at one point they were too strict and they weren't getting enough volunteers. Then they became too loose and they had too many volunteers and no gliders. So it, it was really, I don't want to call it haphazard, but they were test pilots in some ways, tactically and operationally and, and training-wise, literally being revised and, and chain, updated from one mission to the next, beginning with their training in 1942, leading up to the first uh, use of American gliders uh, at in Sicily in July of 43. And so what is the training in America? How, is the, how does the training take place? Well, the, the training began, really got its sea legs to mix metaphors. Once gliders were available to be used and the C-47s were available, some enough uh, C-47s were available, there were temporary training uh, facilities all over the country from Minnesota to the California desert, ultimately consolidated to a large extent in Lubbock, Texas, which uh, today that city is very proud of its legacy and its contribution with a glider, the only glider pilot glider museum in the country. Uh, They get a lot of credit for this book even existing. So they they were training everything, everything from, you know, how to fly a glider, how to tow, how to be towed by a glider. Uh, There's a lot of technique involved. It's not just getting in and, and sitting there by any stretch. They're actually flying the gliders behind these aircraft. They're being towed by a one-inch nylon rope, uh, about a football field behind uh, the C-47. Uh, the C-47 pilots, they had to be trained, and no one had towed gliders before. These D- C-47s were basically commercial DC-3s. 
modified. So everyone was learning on the job, literally from one mission, from one training session to the next, uh, how to build them, uh, how to equip them, uh, how to get up off the ground from a takeoff standpoint, uh, release, uh, how to deal with the weather, getting it down onto the ground with hopefully without tearing them up too much. Uh, there was an idea that these would be large, could largely be reusable uh, in combat. It turned out that wasn't the case. And obviously, most of the training in the States, they were landing back on runways for reuse and so on. But perhaps the, the thing, AJ, that strikes me the most is these guys were training in very, very unsafe aircraft uh, prototypes that were being uh, rushed through production as best they could. The contractors that the, the government hired uh, was just extraordinary when, when looking back. One outfit that got a contract to build these gliders uh, built a prototype in a dry cleaning shop in, in Florida uh, that didn't work well, uh, didn't end well. Another one tried to build them uh, in, under a circus tent uh, until a hurricane came along and blew them all away. There was really only one primary uh, manufacturer that really uh, was able to deliver quality gliders uh, within budget. And that was Ford Motor Company. Not too surprising. They know how to build on assembly lines and they converted a station wagon plant into a glider plant uh, and ultimately uh, produced more of these gliders than, than any other contractor. But it, it was uh, a crazy time in the States trying to invent a, a new concept of aviation while the war raged. Well, let's talk about when, let's talk about that first uh, invasion into Sicily. Yeah. Talk about, I guess first it should be noted too. I don't know why, but in my mind, when I first started reading the book, when I thought about a glider, you know, gliders going to action, I thought maybe like three or four that are, are getting towed in, but it should be noted. There's hundreds of these gliders oh, yeah. that are are being towed in. Yes. Talk about Sicily. Talk about how these gliders how this invasion went and there were some complications. Talk about some of the complications for that first time. Uh, this was the maiden flight, the maiden use of, of um, uh, gliders in, in July of 1943. Uh, it, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, it was primarily a, a British invasion from the standpoint of, of the aerial side. And yet the Brits did not have enough uh, gliders and, and tow pilots. Uh, they didn't have enough time to train. Uh, so at relatively the last minute, it was only a few months uh, before the invasion, volunteer American glider pilots arrived with uh, C-47 crews. Uh, they did not have any combat experience. Uh, there was so little time they did, weren't able to rehearse properly. At the last minute, field marshal or general at that time, Montgomery, changed it to a night mission. So literally this relatively small group of pilots uh, to support the invasion uh, at Sicily had to fly through the night, through a storm, across the Mediterranean from Africa to Sicily, over the Allied fleet that uh, had miscommunications and began firing on its own gliders as they passed overhead. It was a disaster by every, every uh, stretch of the imagination. Far too many of them were released too far from shore. Uh, with the enemy fire up ahead, uh, guaranteeing them they would not make it to shore. They landed uh, in the water. By the next morning, something like half a dozen gliders of the original group were able to make land. All the others were in the ocean. 600 men were lost uh, by sunrise, half by drowning. It was a disaster by every 
standard to the point that General Eisenhower questioned whether large-scale airborne operations were even feasible. Uh, just too much, too many variables, too many resources involved. But fortunately, in a sense, that's 1943. Normandy was 10 months away, 11 months away, and they had some obvious time to to learn their lessons, uh, conduct the postmortems figuratively and, and literally. And the, the next real mission became Normandy, which was a, a significant success. One of the things I found that was very interesting was the tension between the gliders and the airplanes that were towing them, because the airplanes that were towing them were the ones that could kind of call the shots. And I think they were like, well, we're going to let these gliders go early because we got to turn around. And the glider pilots had no choice because, of course, they don't have an engine. And there's a, a part in your story where the 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 tow aircraft decides that they're just going to start dropping the gliders and the gliders don't even make it to their landing zone. They have to crash land in the ocean. Yes. That was uh, heartbreaking to research that and, 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 and see the reality of, of that. And, and the, you know, the glider pilots had the option to release as well. And they did in, in subsequent missions, you know, when, the, when necessary and when circumstances dictated. But yes, these, I think the key point you're making, and, and certainly I discovered in the book, is these glider pilots put their lives and those of their passengers in the hands of these tow pilots uh, and who were equally as green as the, as the glider pilots were early in, in the war. Some of the glider pilots from the Sicily invasion harbored grudges against the C-47 pilots for years after the war that my word, they they chickened out and released us way too early uh, when they saw enemy fire for the first time in their lives. It might be some merit to that. Who am I to judge uh, by any stretch of the imagination? Um, so, yes, uh, the, again, getting back to trust, training, and teamwork. The other thing I think, AJ, that has struck me about this kind of a story is these are all strangers to a large extent. Yes, the glider pilots train together and that sort of thing, but they didn't they weren't best friends with the c-47 pilots assigned to their glider on, on a given mission in in some cases sicily was one uh the glider pilots didn't know who their co-pilot was going to be until they walked up to the glider half an hour before departure before takeoff so a lot of times people don't realize how much of war is fought between and among strangers in in many ways beyond the guys that you trained with, of course, and, and from that perspective. And, and that certainly was evident in, in the Sicily mission. Well, what were some of the lessons learned after this initial, it wasn't a failed mission, but after this very complicated mission? Command and control immediately comes to mind. Communication, uh, because these guys are not were not flying in a vacuum by any stretch, not just the enemy, but flying over allied Normandy flying over the invading allied fleets, making sure that uh, approach quarters, allied uh, enemy allied fire, you know, was suspended if they knew the gliders were coming through along with the paratroopers. Many of the lessons though, every mission had, it seems to me, came away with, with different lessons. And it's because this was being invented from to a large extent, from one mission to, uh, to the next. So I think from a Sicily standpoint, there would be a little bit more, but night missions were generally considered too dangerous, too many variables. It became clear that 
more training and ideally at least one full-scale rehearsal uh, before the mission uh, would be critical, especially the larger ones that were to follow. Uh, I think the takeaways from Sicily were simply that there are so many variables involved. It's so complex. There are so many resources and so many different units involved that more preparation, more training, more command, more communication uh, and control is it's far was greatly a higher needed to be a higher priority than that first one demonstrated. And in some of the the research that you did, and in, in some of the um, the interviews from the pilots that uh, that you discuss, how did they feel about this program after this very kind of botched mission? Were they like, you, like, we're not doing this again because this is suicide? Were that was there a lot of pushback? How did, what was the, the feelings of some of these pilots after you know, this? That, that's an interesting question. You know, I didn't see much at all after the Sicily disaster that, oh my God, what the hell are we doing here? Uh, I don't want to do this. You know, that was still at a time when they were still really ramping up uh, training and and recruiting and and that sort of thing back home. And also remember, a lot of this detail isn't necessarily in the next day's newspaper back in the States. Uh, uh, Some of the reports uh, were, I, I remember now, uh, some of the articles in Stars and Stripes and, and so on following the Sicily mission for quite a while bore very little re, re, resemblance to what really took place. You know, the media was very much controlled. There weren't embedded reporters that, like we have today and, and, and that sort of thing other than Stars and Stripes. And they, they were of a different breed uh, than uh, reporters today. So I don't know that there was a whole lot of pushback or, oh, my God, what have we gotten into in real time? Because I'm not sure glider pilots uh, were that up to speed on what had happened real time. Well, let's let's talk about the, in 1944. Let's talk about the invasion of Normandy because this is where the the glider pilots, you know, they there's some adjustments that are made after Sicily. There's more training that takes place. We talk about the the gliders in Normandy and what what their role was. Yes, it, it, uh, this was the first real mission. Uh, com- real mission, if you will, uh, from a glider standpoint. And their their mission was what I was talking about a little bit earlier. Get six to eight miles inland, get to your landing zone, get down and and fundamentally resupply the paratroopers uh, and uh, join in combat uh, as necessary. But their primary mission was uh, to deliver. The, the, The challenges were a little bit different this time because now we're talking about hundreds of gliders coming in from England. Uh, That's a long flight across the English Channel. The choreography was always a challenge, starting with Normandy. Uh, Oftentimes, they would have the the flights uh, of gliders too close together. And by the time they got over the landing zone, they were on top of one another. And that created a lot of chaos uh, in Normandy and in in subsequent uh, missions. When the first 50 C-47s were slowed down a little bit, here come the next 50 right behind them. Well, what do they do? they generally will slow down and go a bit higher. Uh, so you start stacking up. And one of the things that really struck me, AJ, is, okay, all this training, we're going to release you at 600 feet or thereabouts. Many, many glider pilots later wrote about being released at 2,000 feet you know, or, or even higher. Now you're up in the air for several minutes under enemy fire after flying across enemy territory. And, of course, they want to get down as quickly as possible. So their role was to to support the troops uh, coming ashore. 
where they, uh, I think it was 101st, if I recall correctly, where the glider pilots provided support. Uh, the troops coming ashore had a far, <clears throat> excuse me, um, casual, less casualty rate than those troops coming ashore that did not have airborne support. So it was, it proved to be effective, but both paratroopers and gliders, a big lesson there was there, you don't get down in your landing zone that they have on the books uh, when you first start. Um, many of them were spread out far more than what the generals and the, and the fighting troops officers would have preferred or needed. Uh, they were, um, that was a, what would be a challenge frequently throughout the rest of the war, but it was a success. Obviously, Normandy succeeded, and the glider pilots played a key role in that. Yeah, and also, too, so a lot of the, the gliders, so on D-Day, obviously the paratroopers are, they're, they're dropping in. The gliders aren't, are there a lot of gliders on D-Day? It was my impression that a lot of them came after D-Day. There were six waves of gliders. Uh, I think it was two waves of 50, you know, at, at sunrise or even a little bit before sunrise. Another uh, two waves uh, later in the evening um, and two more the next day. So this was a okay. two-day mission of 500 gliders, 1,000 glider pilots, dwarfed what had been had taken place at Sicily. So this was the major use, the first major use of gliders over a two-day period. And so in what ways did 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 the glider program how is it successful now how did how had things improved and and what were were the contributions that these pilots made they demonstrated that it was now feasible to deliver troops and supplies relatively um reliably not at ground zero but certainly uh, for the for the paratroopers and and the, the advancing and advancing troops. They were able to land within their landing zone or close to it. And a lot of people don't realize when you talk about a landing zone, it's actually a group of maybe 200 fields all in, in a one or two mile radius uh, kind of a thing. Uh, you have to pick a spot to get down, but your, your assigned area would be considered the landing zone. So it, it demonstrated uh, the viability of supply from the rear or in the rear uh, at the time of, of invasion, not as quickly and as, as concentratedly, if there's such a word, you know, as the war planners would have liked. They learned other lessons. Uh, the field intelligence for the airborne was generally considered very poor after the fact. Uh, the photographs that were taken, the recon photographs were taken at midday in advance of uh, the invasion. Um, midday means that you didn't show the, the shadows of the hedgerows. Uh, that everyone thought were hedges turned out to be 30, much bigger 40, 50 foot trees yeah. uh, <laughs> making getting down inside a small farm field uh, even more difficult some of the communications in terms of some glider pilots felt that they were misled uh, as to the risk uh, of what they were about to embark upon in, in hopes of building up their morale uh, many of them said after the fact just tell us what's going to happen um, and, and we'll deal with it um, but some of the recon intelligence was considered very, very faulty or inadequate. And that would be something that would have to be addressed in future mission, future missions. Yeah. And you include uh, also too some uh, journal entries from some of these pilots yeah. who felt that it was very chaotic. And you talk about how like 
you know, the commanders don't, the, the pilots felt like the commanders didn't understand the on the ground situation and that, you know, five minutes on the ground could teach them more than, you know, a year's worth of training. Well, what were some of the, what, what were some of these feelings that the pilots yeah. had? That's a great question. And it was a real, not a mixed bag, but this was their first, for most, almost all of these men, this was their first time. This was their first missions uh, for a tactic that had never been flown before. Uh, so everything was foreign. Uh, how difficult it was uh, that you're not going to be released at 600 feet where you'd been training for two years. You're going to be released at 2,000 feet. And you had not been shot at uh, with this shrapnel, you know, shredding. Uh, your co-pilot and, and that sort of thing as you're trying to get down. Suddenly learning that you've got to watch out for the other gliders to make sure there aren't mid-air collisions because three gliders are heading for the same small farm field. Obviously, when once they got on the ground, they had not experienced live fire from the enemy you know, surrounding them or, or having to deal with wounded glider infantry uh, once they were on the ground. Many of the passages that you read in the book talk about what it was like after they landed uh, in, in terms of finding a, a, a ditch uh, alongside the farm field uh, uh, and dragging your buddy to it. The fact that these aircraft were flammable, you know, you had to be careful about getting away, you know, quickly because you know, the right kind of phosphorus rounds, uh, these aircraft would burn up and potentially explode, uh, depending on what their cargo was, what their uh, payload uh, was so uh, all these things happened real time that really I'm not sure you could possibly train for uh, between you know the Texas prairie uh, and Normandy's farm fields things what like the, what was the casualty rate for these pilots not as bad as you would I would have thought uh, at Normandy uh, the casualty rate was about 16 percent as you may know these numbers statistics can be wildly variable uh, when you read the records you know what a troop carrier might narrative after a, a mission might say uh, could be significantly different than what the statistics are a couple of years later uh, but but fundamentally glider pilots suffered about a 16% casualty by comparison paratroopers uh, closer to 40% uh, in, in what they endured uh, side by side in a way um, kind of a thing so I think there are two points to be made. Given what the role of the gliders and the, their mission was, I'm surprised they didn't have a higher casualty rate because they were so exposed literally and, and figuratively. And, and the other thing is, you know, we talk about the flying coffin, uh, which in, in many ways you could make that argument. These aircraft actually were remarkably sturdy uh, for something that had just been invented 18 months earlier uh, and with minimal test flights, if you will. They came in hot and, and heavy, and, and they were able to get them down. Yes, there was damage, and sometimes they couldn't open the cockpit to get every, everybody or everything out, you know, as they would hope uh, they could do from, from a training standpoint. Um, but these were remarkably sturdy aircraft, uh, even though they couldn't be used a second time, and were able to deliver the pilots, the infantry, and the supplies reliably once they got through the horrors up in the sky. Well, and were some of the, the, the casualties, was it mostly getting shot down or was it mostly just um, the dangers of trying to land these things? That's a great question. You know, honestly, I don't know. It'd be both. I'm going to, I would guess uh, from everything that I've written, 
I'm not sure. There are so many reports of uh, glider pilots being shot and killed on the ground uh, yeah. once they, they got free or literally they slide up uh, in their glider up yeah. to a face-to-face to a, a, a German machine gun nest and they never got out of there. I guess seat. it's hard to know, you know, in the, right. uh, if you're shot in the air, if you're shot, you know, or if right. you crash land and or yet, something. Yeah. And yet there were many uh, who were also shot down. You know, the C-47s you know, were shot down. There are reports of you know gliders being hit uh, and 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 crashing, but I honestly don't know the split. I'd almost guess half and half, just from everything I've read. But that's off the top of my head. Well, what are so um, the would you would you say that the the gliders would you say that this was a successful mission for them with Normandy? Yes. Would, yes, so Normandy, so- ab- absolutely. There were still things to be learned. Uh, they couldn't be, deliver quite as precisely on the ground as at a spot in the ground, you know, as they would like uh, a few things work out that way in, in war, but it absolutely validated the use of airborne uh, paratroopers and certainly uh, gliders. Uh, and they played an increase both and certainly gliders play, played an increasing uh, role a little bit later uh, in Southern France and then market garden uh, and throughout the war. Yeah. We'll talk about the rest of, the, the glider pilot involvement in Europe. What are some of the bigger battles they're in? Sure. Basically, they forged an amazing legacy of success and contribution to victory in only 10 months, starting with Normandy. And that, that surprised me that how quickly, you know, from 44, you know, the war was over in 45. So you start doing the math uh, after chronicling their contributions with Operation Dragoon only two months later in 44, the, uh, the invasion in southern France to create the, the giant pincer movement, if you will, from the north and south. Uh, again, a long haul across the Mediterranean, but increasingly more reliably successful uh, with things to, still to be learned. Um, that's August of, of 44. Um, literally only a few weeks later, Market Garden, uh, Operation Market Garden in Holland, a, a massive, these are getting larger and larger. And now you're talking north of a thousand gliders and pilots. See, that's and, so and, incredible. How does that even, how do a thousand gliders, <laughs> how do they land? How does it, it, it logistically, well, exactly. it just blows my mind. It, it, exactly. And, and a lot of the reports from the glider pilots uh, that you read, I don't want to say it's more so, but a, a big share of what they account recount is the chaos in the sky. That, you know, we're laid out over target because the other guy's in front of us or whatever the case might be, or we were stacked up and now I'm at 2,500 feet and my C-47 guy releases me. And, and now I've got, you know, a mile and a half, half a mile to get down through enemy uh, fire, avoiding midair collisions. Uh, there's a field over there that, that's got um, vegetation in it and, and great fields, but the only thing I have left, I can't, I can't stay up. I have to get down. I'm, I'm dropping literally. So it's it's remarkable to think about for all the training and planning when you're being towed for three or four hours, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles, it's not very, you can't stay choreographed by the time you get across enemy territory and land in enemy territory. You know, from something like 23 bases, uh, Market Garden, just the planning ahead of time. It, it, it has yeah. to be a house of cards. 
And I think too, and just, you know, kind of thinking about logistics also, you know, you're, so you're a glider pilot and this, I think this is also just crazy. You're a glider pilot and you're, you're, you're literally crash landing this glider and in this very dangerous circumstance, um, there's tons of other gliders, your parts probably pounding, you're probably breaking a sweat and then you get on the ground and you're like, Oh, thank God I just survived. And then you just walk back and you're like, well, I guess I got to do this again. Yeah. (laughs) How, how, How often did these pilots just keep, keep landing like this? With the five major missions, there were some, a few pilots that, I think a couple did them all. Uh, I saw several uh, who had flown, who ultimately flew all the four major missions. Uh, some flew only one. Their, their squad, their troop carrier group, uh, wasn't assigned again for any number of reasons. I would say the vast majority flew two, maybe three, uh, of the major missions, typically out of, out of England. But you're right. I a lot of what they write about and what they shared with their families and in their diaries, it uh, was certainly the horror of the fighting on the ground. And then, you know, once things settled to some extent, they might have assignments of guarding prisoners or, or support elements, uh, some combat training, of course, because uh, they were infantry to a certain extent uh, at these. When they landed though, they didn't, they didn't grab a gun and, and go to the, you know, join, join everybody at the front though. Correct. Well, they're already, they're behind the front. They're in enemy territory and they're surrounded. They're taking enemy fire, literally, as they're climbing, generally speaking, climbing out of their cockpits. Uh, and, and they've got weapons with them, small arms, uh, and, and they're returning fire. Oftentimes, many, many times, they were returning fire just to get from the glider to cover uh, to a row of bushes or trees or whatever. Um, they would then report to a, a designated a glider pilot officer and, um, they might fight for a day or two, depending on, on the circumstances. Some of them remained uh, on the battlefield for several weeks uh, before they finally were able to get back to the channel or whatever it might be and get back to their bases. So there was more of a combat element, I think, than perhaps the war planners initially anticipated. Uh, I can't prove that. But yeah, these guys engaged in combat just in, in the course of landing much less for a day or two. Uh, Market Garden, uh, they were put on the front lines. 300 of them uh, were drafted, uh, ordered uh, to take a post uh, for two nights, two days on the front line uh, because of tactical situations on the ground at that time. So they were more involved with combat than perhaps they were initially trained to be or anticipated to be. But again, that's the reality of war when you're uh, in enemy territory. Well, Let's, you know, I mean, let's wrap up, I guess, in Europe because the war ends quickly. But the story of the glider pilot program doesn't end in Europe because then, you know, of course, we're fighting Japan. How does that, how does the transition from Europe to Japan work for our our glider pilots? Well, near the end of Europe, uh, they were beginning, uh, the basics rudiments were being put together for training for the use of gliders uh, in Japan. And, and the fundamental challenge was based on what we've learned about landing in 200 acre farm fields in Europe, how do we land in rice paddies uh, in Japan? A whole different concept uh, in terms of how do you land? And these are small rice paddies. How do we literally blow up the glider because we can't drag it away? There's not enough room for the next glider to come in and land on these tiny little rice paddies. So that training was, was taking place 
in anticipation of the invasion of Japan. And of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki changed all that. So there were pilots that had already received orders to begin training for uh, the for the Pacific, uh, the invasion of Japan. Obviously, that didn't take place, and 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 peace came uh, to the world in, in 1945. From there, gliders were already considered in many ways obsolete. Um, while they contributed and the pilots so much to victory in Europe, clearly the the resources involved, uh, some of the the challenges of reliably getting on the ground and, and so on uh, were significant. Also, a new technology had come along late in World War II, something called the helicopter, which wasn't as dependent on weather and another aircraft and, and all those kinds of things. Payloads were minuscule at, at that time, but nonetheless, certainly was validated in Korea and, and beyond. So within a year was, or two- Was the glider ever used again after World War II? Just in some some commercial attempts uh, in post-war, uh, training some exercises up in Canada, supplying some troops that were on, on winter-long uh, training exercises. But fundamentally, no. Um, they didn't prove to be viable from a commercial aircraft standpoint, although some attempts were made. The military technology had, had moved on uh, from the idea of, of towing uh, gliders uh, into enemy territory. So they were declared obsolete fairly quickly. Surplus gliders were sold. These were huge. They took five huge crates made of grade A lumber uh, to ship them uh, to Europe. They were sold as surplus, $75. Now it was $1945, but $75 and you could be the owner of a World War II glider. The reality is most people were buying the gliders for the lumber of the shipping crates. Um, something like 10,000 board feet of lumber to get a glider uh, from the manufacturing plant from Ford uh, to England. And that's enough to build a family room, a small addition, a deck, a barn, maybe all of the above. Um, their parts were scavenged in Europe during the war and afterwards. Their metal frames were used for cattle feed bins and, and their wheels were used for farm carts and that sort of thing. So basically they were scavenged and, and sold to the scrapyard, if you will, put on the scrap heap uh, post-war. Very few, if any, that I can recall were reserved for future uh, museums, um, unfortunately. But again, fortunately, we do have the Silent Wings Museum in Lubbock, Texas, um, the National Glider World War II Glider Pilots Committee. They've done a remarkable job of collecting these glider pilots' personal legacies, uh, recollections, and, and documents, and so on. So we do have their legacy. We do have their archives uh, in Texas. Well, why do you think the story of glider pilots in World War II has largely been forgotten? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, you, when I read some of their accounts after the war, they felt like they were neglected and overlooked by the military. Were they part of the, the Army or were they part of the Air Corps? I remember one man writing that we thought we'd get our awards and recognition from the Air Corps. The Air Corps thought, well, we're really part of the Army. And so we were just kind of fell between the cracks, if you will. You know, movies and books have been written, obviously, about the paratroopers and that part of the airborne uh, legacy, and deservedly so. But it just hasn't been some, and, and they disappeared, uh, you know, as quickly as they appeared, you know, during the war. I mean, they were gone uh, within, they didn't fly in the States or or whatever. 
And I think the other part is it was a relatively small group of American heroes, in my view, four or 5,000 who saw combat uh, in glider, uh, glider missions, uh, rather. And they, like most of the greatest generation, you know, they came home and, and almost as quietly as they entered enemy territory, re-entered private life and didn't share it. My dad was in the army and never said a word about World War II. That was something my mom told us, we don't talk about at the table. Okay. And under, understandably, with all due respect. And I think these men just went about their business. They went on to become map makers and bankers and farmers and just like everyone else from the greatest generation. Uh, and it was just a small slice of their legacy. It's just, unfortunately, to some extent, been overlooked. Well, what are you hoping that uh, readers take away from your book? Wow. <clears throat> the thing, AJ, the thing I always, almost all of these World War II books that I've written is how to have faith in every generation that what our nation calls young men and now women will step up and, and bear the burden, carry the burden for us. Uh, I've been involved with the USS Midway Museum for many, many years. And I remember one time a, a World War II veteran saying, after a man had thanked him for his service and, and greatest generation and so on, he turned to me and said, you know, I'm tired of hearing that. I said, John, why? And he's just thinking, I know he meant well. But he said, you know, we weren't the greatest generation. Every time our nation has called on a generation to step up in uniform, we've done it, politics notwithstanding and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's something that always inspires me when I come across some of these unsung heroes and, and hopefully shine the light on them of appreciation and just recognition that, you know, here's one more example of young men, young fathers, sons and husbands who are willing to put their lives on hold and risk their lives for an, an aircraft not yet invented. I, I find that just so inspirational. And it's really, I think, part of a continuum to the 1% of Americans who serve our country in uniform today. You know, one of the things when we think about recognition, uh, the general public doesn't know much about the, these heroes, in, in my view. But in some ways, the military knew uh, then uh, just how remarkable these heroes were and their contributions. They earned an air medal, the, equivalents of a, the equivalent of a bronze star, every time they flew a combat mission. By contrast, bomber pilots required five um, missions before they would earn, and deservedly so, an air medal. Fighter pilots, 10 missions. So that begins to give you a sense of the dangers that these uh, glider pilots uh, faced from the standpoint of they were receiving a medal for bravery every single time they took off and headed for the battlefield. Oh, wonderful. Well, Scott, we'll end on that high note. <laughs> Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on my show today. This has been such uh, an incredible conversation. If folks want to uh, find you or, or follow you, are you on social media? How can how can people follow yes, you? Yeah, I, I have a website, www.scottmagaw.com. Uh, a couple of different Facebook pages, but Scott McGaw Author uh, is the one where I really focus on uh, this story, the brotherhood story and, and things that are not in the book. There's, there's just too many things uh, to get in and, and some of my other books and the ones that are planned. So scottmagaw.com and Scott McGaw Author on Facebook. Wonderful. Well, Scott McGaw, Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin, the glider pilots of World War II, 
go buy a copy, go check it out from your library. Um, it's a story worth reading. And Scott, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, AJ.